Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. A warning. This episode contains explicit language and content. Listener discretion is advised. Every day, all around the world, stories, ones meant for magazines or newspapers, blogs, or the local evening news, are killed. Removed from the pages, struck from the airwaves, relegated to that little special filing cabinet under an editor's desk. There are a million reasons why a story might get killed. Maybe the news changed, or a subject changed their mind. Maybe another publication got there first, scooped you. Maybe it just wasn't working. But some kills are different. Some kills feel like they're being directed from a place behind the curtain. Hello? Is this an okay time to talk? I got some bad news. A place where shadowy figures call the shots. The piece is killed. Killed? Killed. Dead. Holy shit. And in those cases, A story isn't killed because it reveals too little. It's killed because it reveals too much. This guy shows up and he notices this bar cart over in the corner and he says, can I have a drink? And I said, I don't think that's a good idea. He said, considering what we're going to talk about, please. I said, yeah, man, go ahead, help yourself. From Justine Harmon and Audio Chuck, this is Killed the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. Episode one, The Director. You could say that 2018 was a pretty weird time to be the editor-in-chief of a men's magazine. With the aftershocks of the Me Too movement coursing through the country's veins, magazines that traditionally glamorized a Don Draper-style existence didn't just seem retro, they seemed, well, kind of wrong. In the midst of all of this, a man named Jay Fielden took up the mantle at one of the oldest and most storied men's magazines in the country. Esquire, the bad boy of Hearst magazines, the publishing giant behind Elle, Cosmopolitan, 17, and Good Housekeeping. For nearly 100 years, Esquire had been a raucous playground for its male writers. Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Capote, Mailer, Wolf, Carver. All of them spilled ink for its discerning pages. Esquire's founders first considered names like Stag and Trim and Bow before settling on Esquire. Fielden, a Texas-born editor who had recently resuscitated Town & Country, knew that in order to survive, Esquire would have to confront its legacy head-on. He immediately vowed to air out the cigar smoke wafting through the magazine's pages. Gone also were the three Bs. No more brown liquor, boxing, or bullfighting, he vowed to the New York Times. That part had been easy enough. But what would he replace the three Bs with? That was a bit more complicated. It was uh, a month or two after the Weinstein stories initially broke, 
I remember this conversation vividly. He said, Meet Max Potter. Max was Esquire's editor-at-large when the magazine's executive director of editorial, Michael Haney, called with his next potential assignment, a Me Too deep-dive investigation into pedophilia in Hollywood. In many ways, it was the perfect modern Esquire story, an unflinching look at the darkest part of toxic masculinity. He said they had some intel and they wanted us, me, to to look into a particular entity in Hollywood. Max lives for this kind of stuff. Before joining Esquire, he'd been on staff at rival magazines like Details and GQ, and finally landed in Denver, where he spent a decade turning an unknown regional monthly into the kind of magazine that wins awards in New York City. Every writer Max knew was pivoting to video or podcasts. Max Potter doesn't pivot. And a few days went by. My editor called me and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to partner you with Alex French. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know who Alex French was. We had never worked together. I'm probably a generation ahead of him in journalism. But Michael and the team at Esquire felt that two reporters on this was necessary because it was a fairly seismic undertaking. I immediately understood that he was correct. I didn't need to be sold on that. If this all sounds a little vague, that's because it was. The editors only had fragments of the story. It was up to the journalist to find the facts. Days later, Max was on a plane to L.A. to meet this Alex French. How we first met was, we f- I, can't, I can't remember the exact details, but we end up both coming from our different places, Alex in Jersey, me in Denver, Colorado. And I met him at the rental car place. You know, I'm already off of the shuttle bus from LAX waiting at the Hertz or whatever the fuck it was, Avis. And he is wearing a red Adidas workout suit and a fedora. And I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. I wear it for flying. It's the most comfortable thing in the world. That's Alex. He says the tracksuit is actually black, not red. Yeah, no, it's, it's black. And also that the look slaps. I was very fond of wearing, like, my fedora with a hoodie because it was sort of, you know, two separate sartorial impulses being accessed simultaneously in a way that kind of worked. Max and Alex were an odd couple, but like two separate sartorial impulses being accessed simultaneously, it worked. Where Max was inclined to broad strokes, big picture thinking, Alex was fussy about detail. Where Max was skeptical, Alex was curious I arrived, I threw down my bags, and we went out for dinner. We were talking about the story, and uh, I said to Max, like, do you think we're going to get sued? You know, just sort of like joking around. And he was like, I definitely think we're going to get sued. The next morning, they got to work. We were working the phones next to each other, apart from one another. Sometimes we would separate into rooms in the Airbnb. We would come back and we would reconvene. You know, we'd knock on the door and like, holy shit, I just talked to so-and-so and this happened. Let's jump in the car. We can meet her out at the valley at this restaurant. You know, It was just like the movies, except they were rushing off to meet with two former stage moms turned internet sleuths. We were flooding the zone. Who also claimed to know everything about Hollywood's biggest pedophiles. Early on in that visit, we met with Two women that um, Alex lovingly dubbed the mommies. 
And these were moms that had formed an entity for parents of working child actors. Over the years, what they had found was there was this sort of like pervy, dark underbelly on the internet that was essentially trading headshots and photos of child actors. They believed that it was sort of this online culture of pedophiles. And so they started their own sort of like unofficial watchdog group. They laid out what they believed to be a matrix of how they perceived this culture. They literally did a diagram, like a chart. Brian Singer was at the center of that chart. And we had several conversations and interviews with people as we were pursuing this other entity. And Brian Singer's name kept coming up. For decades, rumors had trailed Brian Singer, the baby-faced wonderkind who helmed the Oscar-winning The Usual Suspects before practically being handed the keys to the X-Men kingdom. Here he is talking about 2016's X-Men Apocalypse. He imbues her with extraordinary power to fly, to travel through lightning bolts. Her hair becomes shock white. There had been allegations of abuse on set, drug use, wild behavior, and all-night parties. Lawsuits alleging that Singer had raped and assaulted young boys, some of whom were looking for their big break in Hollywood. Most of these suits were settled or dismissed, and then the story just sort of fizzled. Like his fictional mobster, Kaiser Soze, Brian Singer always seemed to get away. And like that, he's gone. We weren't thinking about Brian until these people kept bringing it up. And then we... We started sitting on our laptops and we started Googling shit. And we're like, oh, he just got kicked off of Bohemian Rhapsody. Brian Singer has been fired from the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. 20th century but there was more. A guy named Cesar Sanchez Guzman had just fired a civil suit alleging that, that Brian Singer had sexually assaulted and, and raped him when he was 17. Oh, okay. What? Alex and I started to think like, you know, the great mystery is screaming in our faces like, hey, knuckleheads, this is happening. This is this is a story that you're supposed to report. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm OK, when the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there, because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support, anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. This is Killed, the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. Even though they had never worked together, Max and Alex quickly found their rhythm as a duo. The reporting was both chaotic and instinctual. One source led to the next, one foot after the other. At one point, Alex found himself high on THC peach gummy rings at a warehouse in New Bedford, Massachusetts. He was just poring over dusty old office files that once belonged to Singer's business associates. 
the warehouse was like 150,000 square feet. I mean, it was just massive. And the guy had like old toilets and tape recorders and televisions and tennis rackets. He had a ladder that you would like push along the wall and have to like climb up onto the shelving. It was, you know, it was like 20 feet up in the air, hanging on to like garage shelving. It, it was, it was nuts. I felt like a cat. Like I would go out into the wilderness and like kill something and drag it back to Max. Alex is up in this warehouse and he's pulling down all these fucking boxes and he's calling me and he's like, Hey, I just found this. I just found this. I just found this. So we start calling more kids and this leads to more alleged victims. Getting these alleged victims on the phone was one thing. Convincing them to share their traumatic histories with the world was another. I flew in to meet a dude. I'll just, I'll call him George. And George was homeless. And we were communicating via a social media channel because it's all that he had access to. He would go to a library and he would, he would log on. He had a phone, but it, you know, was like pay by the minute. This guy shows up and he was probably in his late twenties, early thirties. He looked like he hadn't slept in forever. He was pulling a little like travel bag with the wheels on the bottom. He was living out of this fucking bag. But he also, it, it was obvious to me, whatever the best shit was that he owned in terms of clothing, he, he had put it on. Like he was wearing his version of an interview suit. He wanted to make a good impression, but this kid didn't have shit. And he, he had the shakes. I mean, he looked like he was on something, coming off of something. And he notices his bar cart over in the corner and he says, can I have a drink? And I said, listen, man, I, I don't think that's a good idea. And he was shaking so bad. He said, please. He said, considering what we're going to talk about, please. And I said, yeah, man, go ahead. Help yourself. And his allegation was that Brian Singer sexually assaulted him and raped him. By summer, Max and Alex had several victims on the record claiming they had been sexually abused by Brian Singer. Singer has always denied the allegations against him. There was a pattern of behavior over multiple decades um, of you know sexual predation by Brian Singer on underage or barely legal men. And we had corroboration from all of them. Like, times, places, details... One guy had described to us the sexual encounter with Brian Singer at the house that Brian lived in when he was in, in, in his 20s. And I said to this guy, can you describe the layout of the house to me? And he walked me through the house from the front door into the backyard. I tracked down the owner and I had him like walk me through the house and like the layout of the house matched. You know, we did that kind of work. Former Esquire features editor Bruce Handy recalls the breadth of the reporting. My job at the beginning was was more just, you know, figuring out how to cut the story down to, you know, to a publishable length. Overall, I think I, I, this was the piece I spent, you know, the longest on in my entire career. The home stretch before publication can be grueling. After editors give their final sign off, there is an intense fact checking process where every date, every quote, every last detail is double checked for accuracy. You might spend days quibbling over whether a shirt is chartreuse or pear. And once that's complete, there's a legal review. 
Max remembers going to New York for that final meeting with Hearst's in-house lawyer. Now we're in a room after, you know, close to a year's worth of reporting with a lawyer who's going to take a cheese grater over this. We're getting a colonoscopy, right? It's go time. And I'm like, sweet, bring it. So at the end of that two days, there's a, a, a final meeting and she's like, I see no reason why this doesn't run. A member of the Esquire team with knowledge of the meeting told me, my memory is that they came out of that three-day review with the Hearst attorney backing the story. A few days after, we get a call from Jay and he's like, you know, Kate's got some questions. And I'm like, who the fuck is Kate? Kate Lewis, Hearst Magazine's newly minted chief content officer. Kate and her boss, Troy Young, had recently been elevated to the top two editorial positions across all of Hearst magazines. In the years-long tug-of-war between print and digital, it seemed like a big win for new media. Kate's a former HR executive, who at the time had very little experience editing investigative journalism. And Troy's open contempt for print editions had earned him the nickname Digital Jesus. In the land of content, these two were kings. I should mention here that I was an employee at Hearst from 2012 to 2016 as an editor at both L and L.com. Though I didn't report directly to either Kate or Troy, I knew them both and I would interact with them on occasion. That the Esquire team had been summoned to the executive offices was unusual, but not entirely unexpected. After all, this piece would likely be one of the most ambitious Hearst would publish all year. Max called in from Denver, and Bruce, the features editor, was there in person. I started to get the sense that, that Kate and Troy and whoever else you know, was involved on a corporate level, they didn't really know what, what to do with this piece. There were certainly uh, you know, legal threats, which we were skeptical would, would really happen. But I remember these, these meetings where Kate would be talking about, you know, maybe we should be doing the story in a different way. You know, at one point she was talking about, you know, maybe we should sort of serialize it, like, you know, publish it online and each month have a different victim or alleged victim. It seemed like it was a way to, to shoot the story in the foot. And I just felt they were kind of stalling for time and just kind of hoping maybe somehow the whole thing would, uh, you know, fall apart or, you know, we'd move on to uh, just wanting to write about new sneaker drops or something. Alex didn't understand what was going on either. They proposed two things. One was that we make Brian Singer into a blind item. Then the other idea was that we run like longer serialized versions with alleged victims who had already sued Singer. On the one hand, you're saying, you know, you don't have the juice to name the guy. And then on the other hand, you're saying like, let's water this down. It didn't make any sense to me. They basically said, we don't believe the guys in this story. They're not presentable. Like we just... We, we, don't, we don't believe it. For three weeks, Max and Alex had tried to get their piece across the finish line. It took 21 days. And that period was really stressful. You know, like it was awful limbo. I had a crazy panic attack at a, at a dinner party and wound up crying in my bolognese. On October 15th, 2018, Brian Singer tried to fend off the impending story. He wrote on Instagram, 
I have known for some time that Esquire magazine may publish a negative article about me that will attempt to rehash false accusations. After that first meeting with Kate, Brian Singer posted an Instagram where he said all kinds of shit that just like was nuts. But certainly that registered at these executive offices where this Kate and Troy live. The Hearst executives started asking about the reporting. Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? And we'd say, yeah, yeah, you know, those are good questions. And we did this and we did this and we did this. And yeah, and on top of that, we did X, Y, and Z. They asked, can't you find some better victims? The New York Times' Harvey Weinstein expose had Gwyneth Paltrow on the record. Couldn't they find, like, a Gwyneth Paltrow type? And I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck that means. Um, Like, better alleged victims? Like, the victims, the alleged victims are the alleged victims. Don't you have any sources that are like Gwyneth? Was sort of the, you know, it felt like we were going to have to find some celebrity source. So we we did a memo. It was a, um, a corroboration memo. We cranked that out. It was 36 pages long. We wrote it in 24 hours. Basically, bullet points because we were told that Troy doesn't have the attention span. It was like, without naming sources, where we met them, the story they told, how we corroborated it, and then like chunks of censored and redacted transcripts so that Kate and Troy could see that these guys weren't fucking around in any way. And we got that to them. Like, I think that was on a Thursday and they took the fucking weekend. I don't think they got back to us until the next Wednesday. And those were like the five longest days of my life. Finally, Jay Fielden, Esquire's gentlemanly editor in chief called. Jay called us. I was at home. Um, It was like late afternoon. And he says, I've got some bad news. The story is being killed. They think that what you have is a bunch of guys who had consensual sex with Brian Singer. And I was like, Jay, they were children. And Max just says, Alex, don't waste your breath. It's over. You're wasting your breath, brother. Like, it's, it's game over here. And I said, Jay, I just, I just want to be clear. The piece is killed. And he said, yeah. And I said, just so we're clear, you know this is going to be on another editor's desk within 24 hours. And he said, I know. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support, anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Are you an annoying coworker? Sending emails when everyone else is sleeping? Do they ask, how do you sleep at night? Then you should go to Mattress Firm. They have knowledgeable sleep experts that can help you find a better bed like a Tempur-Pedic. It has technology to keep you cool at night, meaning anyone, even people like you, can sleep. Get matched at Mattress Firm. Sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See store or website for details.
This is Killed, the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. After Esquire officially killed the story, Max and Alex only had 24 hours to make good on their promise. You know this is going to be on another editor's desk within 24 hours. They needed to find a new publisher, and fast. But who? Max had the idea that it was really important that we try to go to a place that had no involvement whatsoever in Hollywood. An old colleague suggested a publication they hadn't yet considered. The Atlantic. The high-minded Beltway Gazette. Max sent a note to the editor, Jeffrey Goldberg. Here's what just happened. Here's who we are. Here's what the story's about. We want to move on this fast. If you're interested, please write me back. And in no time, he wrote me back. He said, I'm going to send this to our attorneys. If they don't come up with any red flags as to why we shouldn't run this, I'm going to be calling you back. Friends back at Esquire sensed trouble was afoot for Max and Alex. And I got an email from somebody inside Esquire, and they said, Kate Lewis has just asked for your contract. Shortly thereafter, my understanding is she walked into Jay's office and she said, they can't publish that. We have an exclusive contract, at least with Max. And I said, she, she clearly hasn't read my fucking contract because The Atlantic is one of the few publications that is not in the, in the exclusive line item. Like, I couldn't take it to GQ. I couldn't take it to the New York Times Sunday Magazine. But the, to, to me, this is indicative that, that, that Kate and Troy didn't want to just kill it. They wanted to kill it. When the shit started to hit the fan and when what happened started to happen, my editor, Michael Haney, and I had a conversation. And he said, this isn't just about killing a piece. This is about suppressing the truth. I swear to you, I wrote, I wrote that on an envelope when he said it, and I'm looking at it right now. There was no journalistic, legal, fact-based reason to kill that story. And I counted them up. Like We made uh, 11 trips in a year to go meet with these alleged victims. They didn't come looking for us. They didn't want to talk about this. Like They've never talked about this. They wanted to know, like, can we trust you? Are you really going to do what you say you're going to do? Are you really interested in getting to the truth of what happened? And every time we assured them in good faith, believing if the facts are the facts, if it's a sound story, if we can report it out, yes. The Atlantic ultimately agreed to publish the reporting first online, and then in the March 2019 print issue of the magazine, as long as it met their own rigorous standards. They brought Max and Alex to D.C. for the close, those grueling last rounds of checks and revisions before a piece is finally done. Bohemian Rhapsody, the Queen biopic from which Singer was fired for failing to show up on set just two weeks before production wrapped, would go on to earn over $1 billion at the box office. We had to do another, like, you know, two-day marathon close uh, down in D.C. And they put us up right by the Watergate where the Atlantic offices are. And the Golden Globes were on. And we watched Bohemian Rhapsody win one glo Golden Globe after another. And then at the end of the night, it won best, you know, like, musical comedy. Golden Globe goes to... 
it actually won Best Drama. Bohemian Rhapsody. And Max and I just like leapt out of our chairs and like huge hug, high five. I mean, we knew like right there, there was no way The Atlantic wasn't going to publish that story. A few days later, The Atlantic team reconvened for one last meeting. And we meet in some sort of like luncheonette little cafeteria in the ground floor of the Watergate. Jeff Goldberg says to us, you guys go downstairs, like get a coffee or a beer, whatever. I'll be down in a minute. I'm going to, I'm finishing reading the piece now. And Goldberg came downstairs and he had a printout of the story. He sits at the table and he taps it. Like there's silence. He sits at the table and he taps it like very professorially. And he, he looks around the table and he said, you guys should be proud. This is journalism. It's the first time in months I'd felt good. You know, like, thank you. <laughs> Dude, thank you. On January 23rd, 2019, a year after they started working together, Max and Alex's story ran on the Atlantic's website with the headline, Nobody is going to believe you. It was based on the accounts of over 50 sources and painted a portrait of a powerful director who allegedly preyed on underage or barely legal boys. In some instances, they claimed raping them. The piece claimed that Singer once grabbed the genitals of an extra on the set of one of his movies, telling him, quote, I have a nice Ferrari. I'm going to take care of you. The boy was 13 and hadn't had so much as his first kiss. The Atlantic not only ran the story, a member of the Esquire team told me, but I believe they also reinstated material that Hearst Legal claimed would get us sued and told us to remove. Yet when The Atlantic published, Singer's lawyers, to my knowledge, never said a word to The Atlantic. The Atlantic has great First Amendment lawyers. They back writers. Max and Alex went on to give an exclusive interview to the Columbia Journalism Review. They name names. We knew that, of course, Hearst, Kate, and Troy are probably not going to be super stoked when that happens. And they weren't. About the article, Hearst issued a statement that the piece wasn't up to its, quote, editorial standards. In response to a list of questions that killed sent Kate Lewis, a Hearst magazine spokesperson responded, quote, we do not discuss our editorial process, but we stand by the decision we made based on our editorial standards. Hearst has a long history of defending First Amendment freedoms, which speaks for itself, end quote. Troy Young declined to comment, saying, I'm not sure I have much to add. A month after the story broke in The Atlantic, Bohemian Rhapsody took home four Academy Awards. No one mentioned Brian Singer or what he was accused of in their speeches. Things began to quiet down and Max and Alex were finally able to catch their breath. They had spent the last year running on fumes, dashing across the country in pursuit of an inconvenient truth and come out on top as the heroes of their own story. Hadn't they? I go back and forth on this in terms of like, was it a win? You know, I feel like Hollywood has created a lot of fanfare around like journalists doing whatever it takes to get the story and the bravery of these buccaneering journalists. There was like nothing like that going on here. Max and I were full on like two guys who were like clinging to each other in sharky waters, just trying to tread and keep our heads above. And we didn't have a choice. 
you know, we had made obligations to the alleged victims. We had to publish the story. And I lost my job because of that. And I couldn't get off the couch for a year. You know, the sort of long-term consequence for, for this for me was like a year of like pretty tough depression. Alex never wrote for Esquire again. Shortly thereafter, Max says, Hearst, stop hanging him too. Hearst did not respond to Kild's request for comment. Alex was paid, there was no kill fee. You know, they, they paid him in full. They, they continued to pay my monthly contract deal until they decided they weren't honoring it. And so that was it. And there was nobody coming to us and saying, hey, you guys did really great work. It was pretty publicized when, when we got let go. Nobody picked up the phone to offer us a job. Max Potter and Alex French eventually were picked up as contributing editors at Vanity Fair, a TV series based on Max's book, Shadows in the Vineyard, the true story of the plot to poison the world's greatest wine, is in development with Judith Light and Noah Wiley attached to Star. And Alex isn't crying into his bolognese anymore either. You know, I've landed on my feet now, but you know, like I wanted to, I wanted to be writer at large at Esquire for 20 years. You know what I mean? And I wanted to do four stories a year and I wanted... I wanted to have that kind of career. Digital Jesus, Troy Young, resigned as the president of Hearst Magazines after the New York Times published accusations of lewd, sexist remarks he had made to colleagues. In a company-wide email, he apologized for maybe having shared too much of his full self at work. You know, while we don't know for sure why Hearst decided to kill the story, we did hear, you know, the possibility existed that it had to do with Troy Young's own Me Too issues. Kate Lewis is still the chief content officer at Hearst Magazines. Jay Fielden recently published his poem, The Mower, in his alma mater, The New Yorker. You can listen to it online. Deep green, St. Augustine, I cut in patterned lines. And Brian Singer? Well, he's just out there, somewhere. What happened to Brian Singer? Um, It looks like he's never going to work again. Like, I know he's really, really wealthy, but, he, you know, he's also a creative person. I, I don't know. I shouldn't comment on that. We hear from sources that we've continued to talk to over the years, he'll never work again. That's justice? Like, wh- where, where is the investigation to vet out the Brian Singer allegations? There was no movement for the Brian Singer victims. I just think it's worth, as a society, asking ourselves, why was the reaction to the Weinstein reporting the way there was? Why was there the reaction to the Epstein reporting the way there was? And where, where was the, the consideration or concern in that regard for the alleged victims of Brian Singer? If you or someone you love has been the victim of sexual abuse, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline, 800-656-HOPE. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call. 
text or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.